This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. Our dinosaur of the day is Delta Dromaeus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. And we have an interview with Keegan Kuhn later in the episode. But first, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, and Marcy. Yeah, thank you, Stegosaurus folks. <laughs> And if you'd like to join our Stegosaurus patrons or any other Patreon level, head over to patreon.com slash inodino. Where you too can be a Stegosaurus folk. Or a Triceratops folk. <laughs> or a Tyrannosaurus folk. You got a whole range. Yeah, also others. <laughs> Jumping right into the news, there is a new dinosaur that was found in China, and it was published in Nature and written by... Ulysse Lefebvre and others. This specific dinosaur, you would probably guess if I said there's a new dinosaur from China. It's a small paraavian, meaning an early bird-ish dinosaur, like just about all the dinosaurs that come out of China. And as usual, it's from the Liaoning province in northeast China. Does it also have feathers? It does. <laughs> it's named Ceracornus sungii. And Ceracornus is derived from Ceracos, which is ancient Greek for silk. And they gave the reason in the paper that it was covered in feathers and therefore silky. And then obviously Ornus comes from bird. So you end up with silk bird. <laughs> it's kind of a nice name. And then outside of the paper, the authors mentioned that the holotype was nicknamed silky since its hind limbs look like the breed of chicken called the silky. <laughs> Which I really like. I didn't like. know that was a breed. <laughs> yeah, it's popular in Asia, I think. So kind of makes sense. And then Sungyi is in honor of Sun Ge for contributions in Jurassic and Cretaceous ecology in Asia. Ceracornus is from the late Middle Jurassic, about 165 million years ago, which is pretty old for a bird-like dinosaur. And it's closely related to Eosinoteryx, meaning that it has sharp serrated teeth, it's covered in feathers, including on its legs, kind of like Microraptor. It has wings on both its arms and sort of legs, although they're symmetric feathers, which means it couldn't fly. But it might have been able to glide. There's kind of a bit of a debate on that. And then its legs look like it would have been a quick runner, which is kind of weird because it sort of conflicts with having feathers on the legs why would you have feathers getting in the way of running? If so, they're silky smooth enough, maybe it doesn't get in the way. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> so it's kind of a weird combination of features. And then the claws on its wings also look good for climbing. So kind of like Microraptor, maybe it spent some time on the ground and then could scamper up a tree and glide around a little bit. Sort of a jack-of-all-trades situation. They found essentially every bone, including the wishbone, which is pretty amazing. But unfortunately, the skull is smashed because it's kind of like the Archaeopteryx lithographica where it's all in one plane. So it got smushed down into this one plane. And since their skulls are so fragile, it just got completely shattered into a bunch of pieces. Aww. Yeah, but like I said, they found pretty much all the bones so they could still tell a ton about the animal. 
and it's basically fully articulated. You know, it's preserved in basically the same way it would have lived. If you're wondering how big it is, its skull is only about two and a half inches or six centimeters long. So pretty Tiny small, thing. yeah. <laughs> and they say that its entire body was about 49 centimeters or 19 inches long from snout to tail. So pretty tiny considering, you know, about half of that is just tail. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to CT scan it to look for pneumaticity or the space where air sacs would go in to see, you know, in that realm how much like a bird it was, how light its skeleton was. But the fossil was too squished to CT scan. Luckily, they knew about a technique called computed laminography, which I will call a CL scan because computed tomography scans are always abbreviated as CT. So it makes sense to me that computed laminography scans would be CL scans, even though nobody calls it that but me. <laughs> <laughs> so I did some research on these CL scans. And basically the main use for them is on flat specimens. So what ends up happening is with a CT scan, you end up scanning kind of through the specimen or at large angles, like 180 degree angles from the specimen. And that makes it so that when you're trying to scan something flat, you lose a lot of visibility when you get to the edges along the long edge. But when you use the CL scan, it scans at a lower incident angle, so it doesn't get all the rest of the specimen kind of in the way. And it works really well for flat specimens. They use a similar technique in the semiconductor industry to scan chips and kind of boards with all the chips on it, because when they get to the edge, it doesn't work right. And fortunately for them, it worked super well with the specimen. So they found that the base of the neck in the cervical vertebrae are pretty pneumatized, meaning that there seems to be air sacs invading them, making the bones lighter. So it's a pretty weird combination of bird characteristics and land-dwelling dinosaur characteristics. There's a really excellent piece of art by Emily Willoughby of it eating a spider, which <laughs> is pretty great. And <laughs> in the picture, it looks like a small brown chicken with a tail and smaller wings. <laughs> So it's pretty cool. I recommend checking it out. And you can get the link from our show notes if you want to see it. Next up is an article published in Historical Biology by Lita Shing and others. And this is just a bit farther south in China than Saracornis. The paper is about the Qingchuan dinosaur track site, and it's from the early Cretaceous. They describe it as all Sauriscians, so apparently they're not buying into the whole Ornithocelida thing yet. And they describe three different types of tracks. There's an avian theropod, there's a non-avian theropod, and there's also a sauropod track. The paper talks about some other trackways, but they only have a couple prints. So this is really the, the money trackway. Plus, you really just want to focus on the sauropods. I guess. The authors wrote, quote, one site shows evidence of extensive trampling attributable to sauropods and theropods that moved in the same westerly direction, though not necessarily at the exact same time, end quote. And when they say that it was trampled, they're really not kidding. There's an area of about 20 square meters or about 200 square feet that has about 70 prints in it. Mm. And I think most of those were sauropod prints. Yes. So it's pretty much just all mashed up with all sorts of footprints. I'm sure some of the footprints were on top of other footprints and really kind of messing up the whole situation. But they relate it to a site in Texas called Davenport Ranch, which was apparently one of the pieces of evidence for sauropods herding as a defense mechanism because you could see sauropod prints and theropod prints headed in the same direction in the same kind of arrangement. So, Like the theropods were tracking them. Exactly. Although, you know, it's the authors point out that's super speculative. And even though it kind of shows the same sort of circumstantial evidence, it doesn't really prove anything at all. Yeah. Or maybe it's like the good dinosaur where the theropods are hurting the, the herbivores. <laughs> it could be. Could also be the sauropods chasing the theropods. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> and then there's one more piece of footprint news that I want to talk about. And this one was published in the Bulletin of the Paleontological Society of Italy by Matteo Belvedere and others. 
and it's all about dinosaur tracks that they found on top of a mountain in Italy. So they were in the Southern Alps. I don't know how these were discovered. I couldn't find a companion piece that kind of talked more anecdotally about it. And in the article itself, they didn't explain how they discovered them, which would be an interesting story because they were discovered on Mount Pelmo. And if you're wondering where Mount Pelmo is, it's near Austria, so really far northeast Italy. And the tracks were found 3,037 meters or 9,964 feet above sea level, which is almost two miles up in the air. Hmm. <laughs> and the pictures of this trackway are so cool because it's basically the picture of a top of a, a mountain. And there's like a cloud kind of around <laughs> the trackway. They must have used a drone or something to take the picture. Maybe they were on a nearby peak or something. Mm -hmm. It looks really cool. And you can see the peak of the mountain in the same picture, which is about 131 meters or 420 feet higher. So it's almost at the very peak of this mountain. And it's just great. It's just a great discovery. Unfortunately, the tracks themselves aren't all that great. They found tridactyl prints that they think are likely theropod, but they're not sure. And they also found quadruped footprints, which they say are likely from a sauropod. But again, they're really poorly preserved, so it's hard to tell. They do know that they're from the early Jurassic because they're on the Trento platform. And I looked into it a little bit, and it's called the Trento platform because it was originally made on a quote-unquote shallow water shelf, which is pretty funny since now it's on the very top of a mountain that it used to be. <laughs> this low-lying, basically like beach environment. Pretty crazy. They think that the prints are all in such bad shape because of weathering. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, it does, because I think there's snow in the picture, and the freeze-thaw cycle is never good for anything. But pretty awesome. I really want to know how they discover these prints. I'm guessing that... Hiking? Yeah, someone must have just been going up to the top of this mountain for fun and recognized it. But they're really hard to see. Even the pictures of them where you know that there's dinosaur tracks in it, they don't really pop out at you. So someone knew what they were doing that discovered these, I think. I also wonder how fun it was dragging up all the equipment to take 3D scans of it up two miles of mountain. <laughs> it's an adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to really love what you do. Yep. And we also have an article about bird skulls and brains as they relate to dinosaur skulls and brains that was published a little while ago, but it's taken me a while to get my head around it, so to speak. <laughs> it was published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And it's sort of like the expression ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny that I've mentioned before, which basically, to break it down, ontogeny is about the organism's change over its lifespan, whereas phylogeny is about the evolutionary tree. And so there's this old expression that basically comes from the observation that as things are developed in the womb or in an egg, they kind of go through these different phases that look sort of like how animals evolved. So you might have heard that humans kind of look like fish in the very early <laughs> phases of the first trimester, and that's sort of the same idea. It's not really true, but the ontogeny or the development of an organism can give some clues about its ancestors if you know where to look. So what these researchers did is they used skull roofs as an indicator for what the brain of different animals looked like. And it turns out that in modern reptiles and birds and all that kind of stuff, there are these markers in the skull roof that show the different regions of the brain. It kind of, there's a little bit of extra bone where it separates out the different areas so you can guess at how the brain was shaped pretty effectively. And what they discovered was that baby alligator brains look a lot like bird brains. <laughs> <laughs> and what that means is that birds could be pedomorphic. And pedomorphic means that as an adult, the animals retain embryonic features. And they also found that birds are more similar to dinosaurs that could fly, like Archaeopteryx, than they are to dinosaurs that couldn't fly. Looking at the difference between the Archaeopteryx brain and a modern bird, there was very little difference, even though Archaeopteryx is 150 million years old, even compared with other dinosaurs from the time. So it's pretty cool. 
And we don't think that Archaeopteryx evolved into a modern bird either. Oh, yeah. So it's not like the brain evolved through Archaeopteryx. It's more like there were features about Archaeopteryx brain in common with modern birds because those are things you might need for flight. So it's pretty cool. It also kind of makes sense because if it's just retaining an embryonic feature, that seems like the kind of thing that would be easy to evolve multiple times because it's not like a new mutation that comes up with something novel. It's basically just a slight adjustment to the growth of the animal. They didn't specifically say this in the paper, but it reminds me of humans because developing reptiles also have a big head proportionally, <laughs> big eyes, and no teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so that's also similar to a bird when you think about it. Yep. And since the birds have larger eyes, that gives them a better sense of sight, obviously, but the researchers also found that the parts of the brain that might help with flight are also larger in birds, which makes perfect sense, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they also have a really cool graphic where they show how brains have changed throughout the archosaur lineage. So going all the way back to when crocodilians split off from dinosaurs and how their brains have looked over the 100 to 300 million year kind of range. Interesting. Yeah. And you can really see these types of differences developing over time into this more flight-like brain when you go down the bird family tree. But then again, you also see them in embryonic alligators as well as juvenile non-avian dinosaurs. But none of that is really what I took out of this paper. What I took out of it is that we're one step closer to getting a chickenosaurus. <laughs> Because they talk about how we could figure out what causes the development to start and stop at these different stages. And then if you take that one step farther, you could take a chicken and encourage its brain to develop more into that reptilian phase that it's not getting to. And then you'd have a non-avian dinosaur brain in your chicken. <laughs> and when you combine that with the other research that lets you turn their beak into a snout and lets them grow teeth and changes the way their feet look. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is make them grow a tail, and you got your chickenosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> just those tiny steps left. It's just growing a tail. It's not so hard. I guess also figuring out how to change their brain. That's a little tricky. Yeah. But you could, I mean, you know, you could just have a chicken brain inside a thing that looked like a dinosaur, and I think it would still be a chickenosaurus. Just not as good of a chickenosaurus. Next, fossils of a sauropod have been found in Thailand. So the sauropod may be the biggest dinosaur ever found in Thailand, which is pretty cool. And more than 20 fossils have been found. A villager in Nyongbuarayao, I don't think I'm close to pronouncing that right, but the district of Chayamphum province found a piece of bone last year. And the Department of Mineral Resources said that after an initial examination, they think the sauropod is... Fuiangosaurus sirinhorne, a mid-sized sauropod that lived in the Cretaceous. Cool. That is, I don't usually think of Thailand when I'm thinking of dinosaurs. No, but they got some cool trackways too we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Next, Derek Larson, the assistant curator at the Philip J. Curry Museum in Alberta, Canada, outlined the steps of discovering and describing a fossil on Daily Herald Tribune. So many of our listeners probably already know, but basically first you need to find a fossil. Seems pretty obvious. <laughs> then you need to excavate it, which involves getting permits. And excavating can take anywhere from an hour to several years. I'm surprised he said an hour, but... Yeah, I guess maybe if it's like a tooth or something. Yeah. Pop it out. Then the fossil has to be cleaned and prepared, and then it can be studied and given a description. And it has to be described in a paper, which goes through many revisions, reviews, additions from co-authors, and then eventually it's published in a scientific journal, and then that's often reported to the media. So, as you can imagine, it takes a lot of time, effort, and people. And the Curry Museum has a volunteer program, and this month in October, the Fossil Preparation Lab volunteer program will run from 4 to 6 p.m. on Fridays. And there's also a volunteer appreciation event on October 27th from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. So if you're in the air and you volunteer, let us know. I'd like to hear how it goes. Next, the exhibit Ultimate Dinosaur from the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto recently opened at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. 
The exhibits open until January 15th, and admission is free with general admission. You can walk along with life-sized video projections of sauropods, which sounds awesome. You can lay skin over bones with AR. You can 3D print models of fossils, learn about fossil preparation, and see 17 fully articulated skeletons and a lot of fossils. So a few of our listeners have already visited. Mark and his wife went when it opened, and they shared some amazing photos with us. They posted to our Facebook page, if you want to check them out, of some of the skeletons they saw. One looks like an Amargosaurus. We also have Michelle and her son Remy, two of our listeners and also our patrons, who went to the exhibit, and they both thought it was pretty great. So thank you so much to Michelle, Remy, and Mark who shared with us their experiences at Ultimate Dinosaurs. And if you're in the Denver area, you should check it out. It sounds like a pretty good visit. Yeah, it does. Well, the Royal Ontario Museum has a good track record. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. So this month, October, is International Dinosaur Month at Wiley. And to celebrate... Wiley Online Library has made some of their evolution and paleontology content free to read, download, and share. So from now until October 31st, I'll post a link so you can dig in. Yeah. Should also mention we that October 11th was National Fossil Day, and we just totally missed that. But there were a lot of great <laughs> things on, on people were sharing on social media and also a bunch of events at different museums. There's even a National Fossil Day song I just learned about. Yeah, and our podcast even came out on that day, and we knew it was happening, and we totally forgot. We also forgot that it was our 150th episode, which is sort of significant. Yeah, it's been a busy year, but <laughs> we'll be more prepared next time, the next big milestone. <laughs> or, or in a year on the next National Fossil Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plenty of time to prepare. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's National Dinosaur Day, because most fossils are not dinosaurs, contrary to what most people believe. True. <laughs> so there's that going for us. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Next, thanks to Graham from the High Speed Hangover podcast who shared this with us via Facebook. So Graham recently released a dinosaur-themed show, and High Speed Hangover is a metal podcast that plays songs from different bands. The dinosaur-themed show has tracks from The Vomiting Dinosaurs, Dinosaur, Show Me a Dinosaur, Deinonychus, Gorgosaur, Carnotaurus, Tyrannosaurus and more. Those are just some of my favorite names of bands. I didn't know there were so many dinosaur named bands. Yeah, there's a lot. So the episode runs nearly four hours, and it's good if you're looking for some heavy metal music. Mashable shared a video of the first, they call it in-game footage, of Jurassic World Evolution, which is a game you, where you can build a dinosaur zoo. Yeah, I think it's kind of like a sequel to Jurassic Park Operation Genesis Yeah, that I know a lot of people like, and I'm eventually going to play on Twitch, but still haven't done. <laughs> well, eventually, maybe you'll play Jurassic World Evolution. Maybe. I want to play it before that one comes out, though. That's the thing that's like... <laughs> You've got months, because the game doesn't come out till next summer after yeah. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Months go by quickly, though. Yeah, look at Fossil Day. <laughs> <laughs> really snuck up on us. <laughs> But anyway, I said it's called in-game footage, but the footage doesn't actually show much of the game. It's more like you see some really pretty dinosaurs set to epic music. Yeah, but it's I think the reason they specify that is the previous trailer just looked like cutscenes. It didn't look like anything you'd actually ever see in the game, which happens a lot in video games. Sometimes it's even live action and things like that. But this one showed the actual models that will be in the game, I think, is the point. And they look really good. They They're do. Very I, impressive. What's well, got that whole Jurassic World, Jurassic Park feel to it, too. Yeah. So by good, I don't mean scientifically rigorous. I yeah. mean... Cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> High quality textures and things like that. Yeah. There's all kinds of dinosaurs in there. I saw Velociraptors, Stegosaurus, T-Rex, Triceratops, Ankylosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Parasaurolophus. Yeah, I remember the Ankylosaurus. I don't really remember the others. But that's because Ankylosaurus is the only one you need to remember. That's not true. Speaking of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, there's glimpses of more new merchandise that have come out. So Jurassic Park Outpost said that it looks like school supplies. And I took a look at the picture. Maybe they're binders? It's kind of hard to tell. 
Um, one design, though, seems to show an explosion or volcanic threat, which goes with the theory that there will be a volcano in the movie. And there's also an image of a cage with a hand coming out, and that might be the Indoraptor that everyone has been theorizing about. Hmm. There was some great cosplay at this year's New York Comic Con. A CBR featured two pairs who came to Comic Con as Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. And the first pair is adorable. Looks like there's a toddler dressed as Lunella, who's the moon girl. And then there's somebody in a red inflatable T-Rex costume, Devil Dinosaur, which is just, it's really cute. And with that costume, the girl has kind of a leash around the T-Rex, too, that's behind her. It looked pretty funny. I think it was the other way around. I think it was one of those where you like, you know how sometimes parents have leashes for their kids. Yeah, but that's not what they made it look like. That's true. It, <laughs> it made it look like the toddler was leading the way. Yep. <laughs> so the other duo has an older girl who looks really cool in her purple sunglasses and purple suspenders and boots. And then there's a man with a purple T-Rex mask, which covers his whole head. All in all, pretty awesome. Yep. Dinosaur costumes are the best. Speaking of dinosaur costumes, more dinosaur costumes anyway, in Kauai, somebody dressed in an inflatable T-Rex costume and then ran on the beach to an inflatable flamingo. Romantically? No, not romantically. The flamingo is one of those that you can sit on the ocean. That's like a raft? Yeah, I guess that's what you'd call it. And it's kind of large, so the the T-Rex struggles to get on the flamingo at (laughs) first, which is kind of funny. And... There's pictures of the T-Rex also standing with a family on the beach, which is the Walter family. So Scott Walter, who shared the video, and I think he's the one who's in the costume, said, quote, I just want people to smile and enjoy life in general. Make the best of what you have here on the earth with your family and friends and those close to you, end quote. And so he does that by taking his inflatable T-Rex costume with him. Last, Build-A-Bear Workshop now offers dinosaurs and dragons. On the dinosaur end, they've got a green-striped Brachiosaurus, a blue T-Rex, a Triceratops, a pink Apatosaurus, a green Spinosaurus, a rainbow Triceratops, a red Brachiosaurus, and an Ankylosaurus Garrett, a mini Spinosaurus, and a mini green Triceratops, which is a pretty good variety for a workshop that specializes in bears. <laughs> True. All of those things are cooler than bears. Yeah. The minis cost $6, and the rest range in price from $20 to $27, though it looks like there's sometimes sales. Of course, though, that's just the base price. There's, you have to pay more for accessories. But the dinosaurs all look happy, then they're smiling, and then the ones with arms can bend to wave at you or give you a hug. Or <laughs> For some reason, they could bend the ankylosaurus arms, and it looks like it's crossing its arms, but in a cool way. That's weird. Yeah, it is a little weird. I was surprised at how cheap they are. Like $20 doesn't seem that bad. But then like you mentioned, they have all those accessories. So you're probably not getting out of there for less than about 50 bucks. Yeah. And if you want to give them clothes or make them say something. That's how they get you. Yep. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dino dig. You'll get all of the details. 
Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Keegan Kuhn. All right, we're here today with Keegan Kuhn, who is the owner of TRX Dinosaurs, which has been around for about a year. And basically he makes these amazing dinosaur puppets, sculptures, and exhibits. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. Actually, thanks for having us at your place. <laughs> yeah. no, it's my pleasure. <laughs> what inspired you to start this? Um, so I travel a lot for my other job, and I'm constantly going to museums. I've been a dinosaur fan since I was a little kid, like a lot of people. And going to natural history museums, I've often found that I was really disappointed by the paleontology and dinosaur exhibits. There was either outdated sculptures or outdated exhibits or just really, really poorly done paleo art to begin with. Uh, and then that's not to be like highly critical of, of museums or other paleo artists. It was more of museums are the way most people are educated about dinosaurs. And it's what the general public learns about dinosaurs. And so I feel like museums have a real responsibility to have really well done and exciting and really engaging paleo art. So that was the motivation really to start. It was wanting to produce higher quality, more innovative paleo art at an affordable price that museums could afford. And from there, it's really just started. It went from originally from doing sculptures to now doing interactive uh, puppets and now branching into animatronics as well. That's amazing. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of commissioned works now too, right? Yeah, so yeah, pretty much everything do is commissioned at this point. Again, originally we were doing just sculptures and then someone said, hey, could you do a puppet? And I never even considered the thought of doing a puppet uh, and tried a puppet and the response was really positive. And so now we're doing puppets all the way from small hand puppets to wearables as well. But the puppets aren't just like any puppet because when they're just sitting there, it looks like a sculpture, but then you pick it up and it's all of a sudden a puppet, Yeah, which is pretty awesome. Well, thanks. Yeah, the, the idea too is, is just that, like try and make everything as versatile as possible so that, yeah, you have something that can be interactive with visitors to a museum or any sort of institution, or it's a puppet that can go to schools or out into the community to interact with more people. But then it also is a functioning piece of paleo art when it's just sitting there as well and just looks like a sculpture. Yeah, they are so cool. Thanks. So, so far you have, let's see, you have a Deinonychus, which is, how long is that guy? Like 10 feet? It's about 10 feet long. It really gives you the sense of how much of it is the tail when you see it with all the feathers on it too. Because with the skeleton alone, it, it stops short. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that looks really great. And then you've got a couple smaller ones, which are like velociraptors, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got the one baby T-Rex. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So the the baby T-Rex is a commission piece. I've got two allosauruses that are also uh, allosaurus puppets, juvenile. So they're about six feet long. Mm. Those are also commission pieces as well. And then working on another commission velociraptor and a velociraptor mongoliensis, not a Jurassic Park velociraptor. <laughs> so... Um, and that's really the the exciting part for me is that I want to do more scientifically accurate, less pop culture dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. uh, the baby T-Rex is definitely more pop culture, Jurassic World style dinosaur. But to do feathered dinosaurs and to show feathered dinosaurs in a different way than some natural history museums are doing. You know, they're, Sadly, some museums basically just put what look like fur jackets on their dinosaur sculptures and they look, you know, there's no surprise that people have a resistance to seeing feathered dinosaurs if they look terrible. They look like weird mammals, kind of. That's it. That's it. So that's part of the motivation behind TRX dinosaurs as well is to show that feathered dinosaurs can be unique looking and also, you know, intimidating. Definitely. But you also mentioned there's a fine line between making them look too bird-like, right? Right. Yeah. And so that's definitely a part of the challenge is, is figuring out a way to still have the 
dinosaurs look like, people's idea of dinosaurs, maybe it's an older idea of dinosaurs, while introducing feathers as well. But again, sticking as close to the science as possible. So for example, the Deinonychus is still, I think, looks very dinosaur-like. You know, it's got the shape that you would think of a dinosaur, but it's got, you know, essentially wings. And then again, that's just trying to figure out a way to create that balance so that they don't look like robins or turkeys walking around. Yeah, and they've got those awesome toe claws too, which definitely help it look less bird-like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's one of my favorite species for sure. And then you also have a huge, what is it? I guess it's a Dakota raptor. Yeah, so it was originally supposed to be a Utah raptor. After doing the piece, though, new research has come out. And so it's since it's been dated and it's not really very accurate. It's somewhere between Dakota Raptor and Utah Raptor. I'm actually going to, I'm working on right now doing a full size accurate Utah Raptor, which I'm excited about. So awesome. And how big is the full sized one? It's going to be about 20 feet. So it'll be a little bit actually on the small side. I mean, the new research suggests that they're even bigger, you know, 25 feet potentially or longer. And is it going to have that new kind of like stockier? Yeah super powerful looking the arnold schwarzenegger dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah definitely which i think is really cool looking it's definitely you know just an intimidating looking animal maybe not as graceful looking as like dakota raptor mm-hmm. but again a super cool animal it's just like a bulldog of a dinosaur <laughs> yeah that's awesome that's usually what people want too they don't need their dinosaurs graceful they want yeah. to look to, to look like ferocious killing yeah. monsters that's it. <laughs> that's it but this time covered in feathers yeah so cool and then Speaking of the feathers, how do you make these feathers? I think the reason most museums do that fur jacket kind of look to them is just probably because it's easier than individually putting in feathers and all that kind of thing. So how do you get like the effect of feathers without spending, you know, five years on it? Yeah. So that's definitely still a work in progress, figuring out the best way to do feathers. For the Deinonychus, it's essentially faux fur that is then sculpted to have the appearance of feathers. And then the tail feathers and hand feathers are done with faux fur as well, just sculpted and then with the quill added in. Then we have a couple different styles of sculptures. So for example, the Velociraptor is actually sculpted foam to have the appearance of feathers. And that's a much easier, a lot faster way of doing it. But I'm actually working on right now doing a prototype for casted feathers. So it'll be out of a like a fiberglass resin. So they'll oh, cool. have really a realistic look, but will have to be individually done. So it'll be, you know, potentially several thousand feathers to <laughs> inlay and paint individually. But again, it's just trying to to produce something as realistic as possible, but still affordable. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a big thing for a lot of museums is that they struggle with budget. You know, it's understandable that they can't afford to spend forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 every couple of years when the science changes to update their sculptures. So the idea is to make these as affordable as possible. So for example, our Velociraptor is around seven, $800, again, which is relatively very affordable. Yeah, for sure. Especially for something that size too. Because I think about some of our replica things, which are just bones, you know, I think the Stegosaurus plate we had was like $300 and the Allosaurus hand was like maybe $200. And that's just one small little piece of an animal. And this is like a recreation of the entire thing basically as it's alive and, you know, similar price. So that's cool. Thanks. The other aspect that kind of sets us apart from other companies and restoration companies in particular is that all of our pieces are posable so that they all have a wire armature inside of them that allows exhibitors or collectors to change the position of the sculpture at any time they want. So the legs, arms, head, neck, uh, mouth are all posable. So again, that way exhibitor can update their exhibit anytime they want without having to spend any sort of extra money. Yeah, that's cool. Because usually it's on like a wire frame or a steel frame. <laughs> yeah, it's a, they're steel frame, big you know, metal bases or concrete bases. They require, you know, for big pieces require building reinforcements oftentimes, you know, mm. floor reinforcements. These are super lightweight. They're made out of uh, polyurethane foam. So they're really light, again, flexible, posable, and just really highly versatile. Cool. So we actually got to meet Keegan at SVP, which was awesome. And over there you had on display the uh, animatronic. So it's an Eoraptor. Eoraptor, yes. And then you were telling us your idea to get this into museums. Yeah, so this is a it's a early prototype for a running dinosaur exhibit, and the idea is that it's a it's a running theropod, but it could be 
and sauropod, it could be any species. It could actually be even non-dinosaur species, but that it has an animatronic legs so that it runs on its own, but it's not able to balance on its own. So it has to be suspended from the ceiling, but suspended from you know polyfilament, basically fishing line, and then run on a track. So it would run along the ground, look like it's self-propelled, but it's being propelled from the ceiling. And so you could have an exhibit, for example, a lot of museums have a center sauropod exhibit you know, in their grand hall. Well, why not a group of theropods walking around or running around that sauropod or, you know, having a wall that has a length of, you know, hadrosaurs walking back and forth along it. And so the idea is to find a museum, an institution that's interested in investing because it'll be more expensive than, you know, a statue, of course. But so, yeah, SVP was showing just a small prototype of an EO Raptor running. And you can actually see footage of that, uh, some clips of that either on our Instagram or on our website, trxdinosaurs.com. And how fast does it run? <laughs> so the prototype is probably about 15 miles an hour, <laughs> um, but it could be any speed. I've actually just worked on putting in a new motor so that allow it to go a lot slower. And, and <laughs> so it's, it's a variable speed for sure. Uh, but it'd be, I think how cool would it be to go to a museum and see life-size animals walking along, you know, and not, again, not to knock on any other paleo artists out there or animatronic companies out there, unfortunately you know they're they have to be static because they're the big steel you know hydraulic or electric structures and since we're using different materials we can make them really lightweight and then again not requiring big reinforcement and allows a lot more versatility of the the animatronics as well yeah i don't mind knocking on other companies a little bit there's there's kind of a trend where a lot of them basically just kind of open and close their jaw and then there's like a sound effect that goes with it or maybe their tail swings slightly and it doesn't really give you a sense of the movement of the animal at all right it still just looks like a statue so it's really cool to see the full body moving you know the legs the arms a little bit and then Mm -hmm. you know it's actually physically moving in space rather than you know just flapping open and close right <laughs> slowly and so and this could be expanded to beyond again just dinosaurs you could have you know a lot of museums will have uh, aquatic reptiles plesiosaurs the skeletons mounted from the ceiling so you're walking underneath them why not have swimming plesiosaurs over top of you you know so you could easily do that or they could be pterosaurs or you could have even like a, an aquarium sort of setup where you have plesiosaurs swimming along behind glass <laughs> you know it could be super interactive really uh educational as well to show that these were once living animals and that they weren't these just you know i think a lot of times people think of like dinosaurs especially big animals as being lumbering yeah but if you've ever seen elephants in the wild they're super graceful they make no noise when they walk i mean it's just this whole other thing that you don't see from when you see a mounted you know taxidermied elephant they're these really graceful gentle animals in their environment and to try and show that as well that they're not these like big thundering lumbering beasts like they were more than likely especially if they had pads on their feet quiet uh really gentle because they're not going to want to be slamming their feet down yeah and they found with the new borealopelta they actually found a foot and on it you can see the foot pad right and it's i don't remember it's very thick it's like an inch or two thick so it definitely was like that it wasn't there's no advantage to being an animal making a ton of noise. Like exactly. you never want to make noise, whether you're hiding or you're hunting or whatever, you want to be quiet. That's the thing that I really noticed when I watched the original Jurassic Park now with the T-Rex and it's like you hear it like coming a mile away, like boom, boom, boom. Like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> it would come up right behind you and eat you and you wouldn't even know. That's it. That's it. So, and that's, that's again, part of it is, is to show that you make it an educational tool but then also you know kind of doing that bridge between entertainment and education yeah because i think that's a really important part that's kind of missing from a lot of museums is that they're heavily focused on the education aspect but sadly a lot of people aren't necessarily reading the plaques they're not reading you know the information that's there so trying to entertain people as much as possible while you're giving them information yeah for sure i also noticed at svp the few kids who were there they seemed to love everything at your booth and and that's really cool because a lot of times you hear about or we were talking to was it John Scanella and they have that T-Rex at the uh, Museum of the Rockies and like most kids who see it get really scared <laughs> but with your sculptures they were very much like they wanted to come touch it and interact with it and so that was really cool <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's kids all the way up from little to adults for sure that are interested <laughs> in them uh, yeah. but yeah the idea is to try and make it 
as uh, approachable as possible as well. And so, for example, the puppets, they're six feet long, so they can be a little bit intimidating for some kids, but for the most part, they're really inquisitive. They really want to know. And then we're trying to also make them you know, as cute as possible while still sticking to the science as much as possible. Uh, again, just to try and make it as engaging as possible. Yeah, I notice you kind of have a mixture of their teeth too, because I think the teeth are a big element of how scary a dinosaur is. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, you say their mouth is poseable. So I assume when you open the mouth, you see all the teeth. Right. But when you close the mouth, you don't. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of could help for that too. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the puppets too have relatively soft teeth as well. Because kids, for whatever reason, they want to stick their hands in the dinosaur's mouth. <laughs> like one of the first things, they want to touch it and then they want to put their hand in its it's mouth. It's a good instinct. Yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> so the teeth are, are relatively soft. That's so, good. Yeah. And the puppets, you know, they're it's an interesting thing. It's just one aspect of T-Rex dinosaurs mm -hmm. though. You know, the idea is to to be in museums as much as possible. You know, a lot of museums are who have the budget are doing the, like the wearable dinosaur costumes. Yeah. Which are really cool, but unfortunately they're they're really cumbersome. They're exhausting for performers. Mm -hmm. And then when you have to when you see the performer's legs, you know, breaks that illusion of a dinosaur because there are all these wearables where you can see the performer's legs mm -hmm. from the bottom. Uh, so we're working on right now doing yeah, full-size wearable that where the performer's legs are hidden. Oh, cool. And I think that'll be a, another interesting, you know, thing that museums can utilize. And not just theropods, too. You know, going into doing ceratopsians and hadrosaurs as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested to see how you pull off a four-legged animal. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've got a couple different prototypes that I'm working on. So. Are there going to be two people in it? Like a horse man and horse costume thing? That was an original idea. But to make it actually work, the the front two legs, the person has to walk backwards in order to get the joints to look right. Oh, because, you know, essentially their, their elbow joint yeah. it would be the performer's knee joint and... Obviously, our knees don't bend the way an elbow does, so you'd have to walk backwards. Um, so, no, the actual prototype is going to be one performer, and then the legs will be mechanically controlled, the front legs. Okay, that makes sense. Because they time, it's always timed, like one leg goes forward and the other one right. goes with it. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. And can we talk a little bit about how you make these sculptures and puppets? Sure. Yeah, so... Uh, Pretty much all of them are made from polyurethane foam. Uh, it's we'll get foam blocks, laminate them together, do a, a skeletal projection. So look at reference skeletons as much as possible, figure out what's the correct anatomy, project that, trace it, and cut out uh, a silhouette of the animal. And then from there, it's just a matter of reductive sculpting. So just cutting away the foam until we get the shape that we want. And then adding on all the details afterwards. And the details are put on depending on what the covering of the animal is whether it's feathers or scales will either be done with a soldering iron so it's basically melted in the details or it's covered in faux fur and then sculpted the fur itself is sculpted to represent feathers about how long does it take to make well they're all so different so. yeah so for example some of our, our puppets um like the baby t-rex is about 40 hours they're silicone skin, so it has a relatively natural, or as natural as I think they could be, look to it. And that's a longer process because working with silicone is just time consuming. You have to wait for each coat to dry, and then painting with silicone is also very labor intensive. So actually, there's probably more time in the paint and skin than there is in the actual sculpting itself. So, but that might just be a learning curve for me. And then when you have to add feathers... Does that actually save time then? Because you don't have to paint it? Yeah. So it's it's an interesting thing. It depends on how detailed the feathers are. So like the Deinonychus was a lot quicker. And that's an older one. Uh, like, But the Utah Raptor, really quick to do the feathers because it's sculpted fur. So I'd prefer that. But then there is also a whole other aspect that comes with it because you have to make a template in order for the fur. Because you're making essentially a fur suit to go over top of a sculpture. Mm. So there's another element to it as well. So the first one takes a long time, but yeah. after that, yeah, exactly. it might be quicker. Exactly. So it's it's all still definitely a learning process. Every single commission comes with a new challenge and a new thing to figure out. And it's so oftentimes I'll do two or three prototypes before I get to the, the final version. And then after that final version, then like things come together a lot quicker. Cool. Yeah. I, I keep just staring at the feet too. Yeah, so those feet aren't actually foam. Those are made out of a smooth-on product called Freeform Air. 
which huh. is a super lightweight two-part uh, epoxy. So they're they're rigid, and the face and four limbs are also freeform air as well. Super lightweight as well. Again, Trish is trying to make everything as as light as possible because when they're light, they don't require you know again the reinforcing, and they are highly mobile. I mean, so that piece, you know, though it's about nine and a half, ten feet long, the tail comes off, and so it can break down into about six and a half feet. And how much does it weigh? Uh, it weighs maybe about twenty pounds. <laughs> That's yeah. so crazy. I remember at the at SVP, you picked one of them up like just with one arm. Yeah. And everybody was expecting it to be like super heavy. It looked like a strongman kind of demonstration <laughs> or something. I mean, so the Velociraptor is six feet long, only weighs about two and a half pounds. <laughs> so there, yeah, the idea is make them as light as possible, which also makes them easier for educational tools to take out into the community. You can go to a show. So a museum who's going to have a booth, for example, at some sort of event or fair mm-hmm. can take sculptures and it's not a big thing. They can put it in the back of their car. They don't have to worry about them getting messed up and then for private collectors as well it's really nice because it's an easy thing to have in your house and move around and clean around and it's not a a big thing and who wouldn't want a six-foot dinosaur in their living room yeah we talked to a few people that were talking about like could i justify this and then like my wife comes home and just like sees this thing in the living room (laughs) yeah i definitely have a very uh very supportive partner who allows me to have dinosaurs all over our house they're so cool though well thanks yeah, and it's just it's just growing. You know, it's again a relatively new company, so this is just the start. And there's a lot of ideas that I still have in my head that are, you know, coming and just trying to make things as innovative as we can make them. And you talked a little bit too about potentially making a smaller one and doing like a Kickstarter or something to make it a little bit more affordable for people that don't want to spend six hundred dollars on a really you know, a larger one, which is totally awesome and, you know, definitely worth it. But if you don't have the space for it or the money for it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So that's an idea right now. I'm not sure when that'll take off, but doing a smaller, like a three foot long hand puppet of a theropod more than likely, and then casting those professionally and mass producing them. So that way you can get the cost down. So again, something still trying to figure out and trying to figure out what the exact species and design will look like trying to do something that is, again, as scientifically accurate as we can make it while still making it appealing to general public to be able to justify making hundreds of them potentially. So that'll something coming in the future if we decide to go that route. Cool. And would that be, I just realized, would that be like one-to-one scale? So would you pick like a small, like a really tiny, like troodon or something like that? It would probably be a juvenile. So okay. juvenile of a probably you know, theropod species, maybe... Maybe T-Rex. Unfortunately, baby T-Rexes are not real cute. They don't have yeah. that round Disney face that like people think of when they think of babies. So I'm trying to find a species that is cute enough to make a baby version of. Oviraptors could be good. Oviraptors could be good. I'm actually working on a, an oviraptor commission, but it'll be a full size. So, But yeah, maybe a, a baby oviraptor. But again, it's got to be something that people want, yeah. enough people want. I think hadrosaur, a, a juvenile hadrosaur might be really interesting for some people. Uh, definitely a juvenile uh, ceratopsian, like yeah, a triceratops, would I think be too. really cute. So that's testing it out. And it could be that's a Kickstarter that has three different species as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so for people to choose from. Yeah. I'm just imagining like we probably wouldn't be able to decide and we want to get all of them. There we go. It'd be a discount <laughs> for all three. <laughs> Especially if you made a sauropod, Sabrina would be all over that. But yeah. sauropods came out looking like adults, so I don't know how cute yeah. that is. <laughs> no, that, I think that works. It's more like with the the issue that you have with t-rex where as a kid it looks like especially awkward right and then it kind of grows into its looks if it looks the same but miniature i think that's okay yeah it'll be okay it'd just be figuring out how to make the the proportions correct because most people's arms are only so long yeah (laughs) with a tiny little head on it so you've got to have either a long arm with a little hand or uh, it's going to be a short neck or make it like a marionette yeah it could be a marionette that's a whole nother whole nother world (laughs) So, but that actually would, is one of the ideas for going back to the animatronics and suspended uh, animatronics would be for uh, sauropods as well. So you could have a sauropod that would have, for example, a long swinging neck that could be run on a track suspended. So instead of, you know, you, if you see animatronic sauropods in museums, oftentimes they're really limited, the neck motion, mm-hmm. or if the neck does move, it's really jerky because they're trying to counterbalance this you know potentially 20 foot long or 15 foot long neck 
So if you were suspended instead, you could have really graceful, beautiful movements. Uh, and so that's something, again, another prototype that's in the works. Yeah. Cool. And show the sweeping motion right? where they're grazing. Exactly. And I think that would be a really interesting thing. And you could control every aspect of it too. You could have a, the big sweeping motion, yeah, to show how these animals potentially grazed, you know, staying in one place and they just move their neck around uh, or their head around. But then like, you can again have that interacting with other species as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be cool. And it would help a lot too with your super light construction to not have to like, you know, <laughs> try to support this 10, 20, 30 foot long neck. Exactly. <laughs> internally. Exactly. So just looking for a museum who's interested in funding that and, and wanting to install it. So For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cool too that you talk about how it would be quite a bit cheaper and easier to install than some of these other ones because when I think about animatronic dinosaurs and like the state of the art cool ones that I want to see, the place that comes to mind is Fukui Prefecture in Japan. They have like, I think it's a T-Rex, but it's like fully, you know, it moves all over the place and it's kind of on a stand, but it must have cost millions of dollars to make this thing. And it looks really neat, but it's, there's only one di like dinosaur museum that has it because right. no one else can afford to put this kind of thing in. So it'd be really cool if, you know, the price point comes down. So museums that are currently basically just buying casts because that's the thing that's cheap enough could start adding more interactive mobile things. Exactly. Yeah. And then in making them as affordable as possible means that they can update them and it doesn't hurt in the same sort of way. So when, for example, yeah, when new research comes out about you know, Utah Raptor that says, oh, well, actually the jaw looked different. Well, you can modify that without a huge expense, you yeah. know, without having to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. It might be a couple hundred dollars to modify it. And that's part of the idea as well as, is allowing the installations to be as truly educational as we can make them. Yeah. Plus they're like kind of modular you were talking about before too. So you could like swap out the tail. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really you could, you could, you can change out those aspects, but then, yeah, you could change the scene. So, for example, uh, they find new trackways and they say, oh, this species interacted with, you know, this other species. You can add in, you could change an exhibit anytime you wanted and no cost. So, there's there's just kind of really endless for museum curators to change whenever they want, however they want. Cool. Yeah. Can I ask like a super random question? Sure. So, I keep seeing your cat walking around <laughs> and uh, like cats and birds... <laughs> Don't get along. <laughs> so the funny thing is, is that the, my partner, she's got two cats. They love sleeping underneath the dinosaurs. Huh. That's like, if I'll, I'll bring one inside and they immediately go and they want to sleep underneath it. So I keep expecting it to reach up and start clawing at that Deinonychus tail because nah. it looks like kind of like a cat toy, but it doesn't seem interested at all in it. No, they're, they're, they're pretty cool with the, with the dinosaurs. So... That's good to know. I guess they're so big, they don't look, they don't recognize the bird yeah, side that, of it, maybe. The funny thing is dogs, how they react to them. The huh. dogs don't know how to react to the puppets at all. Like my sister brought her, her pit bull over and she was scared of the puppets. Like didn't know what to think. Like it was just so funny. Were you funny. moving the puppets? Yeah, I was moving them? it. Okay. So. She was definitely more nervous than the cats have ever been. So. That's really funny. Yeah. So what's the best place for people to contact you or see what TRX Dinosaurs is making? Instagram is the best place. So it's just uh, at TRX Dinosaurs. You can also go to the website trxdinosaurs.com. There's a Facebook page as well that really I fail at updating. I'm really bad at social media. Uh, Instagram is definitely the, where I'm most active. I'll post pictures of pieces being made and then final pieces as well. And then people can place orders. Everything at this point is commissioned as well. So you can put in uh, custom information through the website and you'll get a quote back for what it costs to make them. We're selling to private collectors at this point, but really want to work with museums particularly and want to work with uh, paleontologists directly so we can do truly scientifically accurate pieces. And also collectors that are interested in awesome new exactly. pieces exactly <laughs> how did you come up with the name trx by the way yeah that's no, funny it's a friend of mine i was trying to come up with a name and he's like why not t-rex and i was like nah. he's like well he's like well just do like you know whatever acronym trx i'm like well, that's kind of good like it stands for nothing it's t-rex minus an e uh, it looks like it's a big professional company <laughs> it makes it easy to remember too yeah right <laughs> so and i like the way it looks yeah yeah, I mean, originally it was TRX Sculptures. So if you do trxsculptures.com, it brings up our website as well. 
but I realized that I really just want to be doing prehistoric animals and particularly dinosaurs, open to doing all species as long as they're extinct. <laughs> there's enough really talented uh, natural sculptures out there that do extant species. So yeah. I'll stick to the dead ones. Plus there's like all the taxidermy people do. That's exactly, exactly. <laughs> so if they're dead and they've been dead for a long time, I'll, I'll sculpt it. It's a good tagline. Yeah. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anything else you want to... Yeah, just thanks so much. Really appreciate you guys having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I've been listening to you all for, gosh, two years, at least two years. And <laughs> nice. I've list, listened to every single episode, look forward to it every week. So I'm really thankful for what you all do because it's, uh, I think it's a real, a real asset to the community, to paleontology community, but also to just dinosaur fans because I've learned so much from listening to the podcast. We're just coming from like a novice dinosaur enthusiast to understanding not only terminology, but just all the new research. So I'm really thankful for the podcast and what you all do because it's a real service to this whole community. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And it's funny too, because that's basically how we feel too from doing the podcast. Because <laughs> I realized the title is I Know Dino, but it's really, it was kind of aspirational. You know, it wasn't like I know a lot, so I'm going to start this podcast. It was more like, I want to know about it. So let's start a podcast. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah, but it really is. It's a it's an awesome resource. I find myself going back and listening to old episodes all the time, just because I realize that I'm only getting so much information when I listen to it one time. So I'll go back and if I'm, for example, working on a, a piece on a species, I'll go look through past episodes and say, okay, well, where's the episode where they had a, a either a researcher or it was the dino of the day or it's a news piece that covers the species. So I think it's an awesome resource. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, it saves me from doing a lot of reading. <laughs> yeah, we do a lot of reading. We do. <laughs> you do it for us all, so. Well, thanks so much for having us, too, and letting us be up and close with yeah. your sculptures. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Keegan. We really enjoyed talking to you and seeing your dinosaurs in action. Yeah, that was a really great interview, and we really enjoyed playing with the puppets. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Delta Dromaeus, which was a request from Dinosaur4602 via YouTube, so thanks. It's a carnivorous theropod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now northern Africa, and its name means Delta Runner. The type species is Delta Dromaeus agilis. It had long, slender hind limbs for its size, so it was probably a fast runner, which you may have guessed from its name. And it was named in 1996 by Paul Sereno. Gabriel Lyon found Delta Dromaeus in 1995 while excavating Cretaceous sediments, and Paul and Gabriel actually got married in 1996. So I wonder if this dinosaur brought them together. <laughs> so Delta Dromaeus may be a junior synonym to Bahariosaurus. Bahariosaurus was named in 1934, but that type specimen was destroyed in World War II, so it's not actually possible to compare with Delta Dromaeus. Ernst Stromer actually considered a few more specimens to be the same as Bahariosaurus, but then Paul Sereno referred them to Delta Dromaeus in 1996. However, that's been questioned because they came from different localities in the Baharia formation, and they have some differences from Delta Dromaeus. The Delta Dromaeus holotype was fairly complete. It was about 26 feet or 8 meters long. No skulls have been found, though, for either Delta Dromaeus or Bahariosaurus. Some teeth have been labeled as Delta Dromaeus, but... Since there's no skull, it's not clear if they're actually Delta Dromaeus. Delta Dromaeus may have weighed up to two metric tons, 
And other theropods found in the same formation as Delta Dromaeus include Carcharodontosaurus, Spinosaurus, and of course, Bahariosaurus. When it came to these large carnivores, being fast may have helped Delta Dromaeus stay out of their way. Delta Dromaeus was thought to be a ceratosaurian, but an analysis of Aeonoraptor, which may be synonymous with Gualicho, has found that Delta Dromaeus and Bahariosaurus may be from a poorly known clade of Megaraptoran tyrannosauroids that are different from Megaraptoridae. Hmm. And our fun fact of the day is another one about coprolite, <laughs> because I learned a lot about coprolite. <laughs> you just like talking about poop. I do. <laughs> so... It turns out that coprolite from herbivores is harder to find than coprolite from carnivores, which seems pretty different than what you find just like walking around. I'm always running into herbivorous poop <laughs> all over the place, <laughs> whether it's like a horse on a running trail or, you know, like a cow patty or like deer. There's deer poop all over the place. Where are you going with all this poop? Like, <laughs> I don't see it. It's in nature. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd, I wouldn't even be able to identify carnivore poop. I don't know. But according to Paul Barrett, the reason that carnivore poop is so much more prevalent as coprolite is because there's calcium in it, and specifically calcium that comes from the bones that they ate. Oh, wow. And then during the fossilization process, the calcium helps to preserve the poop and turn it into coprolite. On the other hand, herbivore poop is basically just the beginnings of a compost pile. <laughs> it's like partially decomposed plants, which there's tons of stuff around that is very active in decomposing it. So it disappears pretty quickly. What about omnivore? I guess if they had bones in the diet, that mm. would probably help preserve it. Yeah. Seems like the trick is bones from what I gather. But it made me wonder, that paper we talked about a couple weeks ago with the crustaceans. I was just thinking. Maybe that was preserved because it had that calcium in it. Mm -hmm. So it could be kind of a preservation bias where it looks like a lot of herbivores are eating these crustaceans. But really, those are just the ones that preserve. Interesting. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss out on any episodes. Also, if you want to join our growing community on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.